This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language and some adult content. Nil Desperandum 19 Obligatory Leanings by Carissa Halston Carissa Halston has twice been nominated for the Pushcart Prize, and she received an honorable mention in the 2008 New York Book Festival. Her novel, A Girl Named Charlie Lester, is available from the retailer of your choice. Our narrator this week is Mr. Richard Coons. Obligatory Leanings by Carissa Halston During the unfortunate decade that heralded the popularity of polyester, frosted bangs, and designs shaved into white kids' hair, I grew up in Billings, Montana. In the wake of my undergraduate education, I fled to Chicago, forsaking my hometown and, as my mom called it, the promised land of plenty. There was no use in trying to explain mixed metaphors to her. She just liked the sound of them. All my college friends had similarly scattered post-pomp and circumstance, leaving me dully entertained during my annual pilgrimage for Thanksgiving and Christmas. In their absence, I participated in every form of regression. I slept in my old room, watched movies from my childhood, and feasted like a wild dog on the arid array of festive meat that man has eaten since time immemorial. Around my thirtieth birthday, a year I decided would prompt my final descent into adulthood, I chose to stay in Illinois for Christmas. My absence was sorely noted. I knew what I'd be missing, hours driving around looking for a tree to decorate. We can't pick one without you, which would take the entire evening to decorate. Can you fetch the extra box of garland? I think it's in the attic. Followed by two hours of gift wrapping, including my own gifts from Mom the perennial single package of gym socks, and an inoffensive wristwatch. Aren't you a little old to be surprised? And then going to bed just in time to catch the newly risen sun across my brow, like a tattoo of fiery insomnia burning against my eyelids. After shaking to cognizance, Mom would ask me, Just like being a kid again, isn't it? Sure, I'd normally reply, except that Santa used to leave me a cookie. Oh, she chuckled, we let the dog eat it. Mom's mongrel Lhasa Apso would grin at me, her teeth boasting my stolen reward, and nuzzle against my mother's open hand as Mom would squeal, Let's open presents! Being the youngest family member present and the only child to boot, I would be placed in charge of setting the stage for festive merriment. My level of delight would vary depending on the proof of my Christmas morning eggnog. As soon as I had at least one healthy pint, I'd pass around gifts for Mom, her sister, my Aunt Tina, the filthy Lhasa Apso, and last but never least, my grandmother Emma, who I called Mima ever since I was old enough to mispronounce words. Mima always presented my gifts, which arrived with a shakier hand as the years progressed. These exchanges would eventually lead to heaps of cooing and gratitude and Mom nudging me whenever I looked as if I was going to nod off. Every Christmas I longed to doze, 
and every Christmas I had to wait until late afternoon between screenings of Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life until I could fall asleep. By the time I woke up, Mom would be sniveling in a twice-wrung handkerchief, and I could never resist mocking her. In her drunken indignation, for she too partook in the Christmas eggnog, she'd work herself into a frenzy, yelling that I was no good, just like your father. Although this sort of outburst only ever occurred during the holiday season, the lack of his name even being mentioned for the rest of the year provided me ample opportunity to build a representation of my father in my mind. I dreamt him into a taller, older version of myself who appeared on Christmas morning to mend fences with Mom. In these imaginings, she was just as stubborn as in life, telling him that no apology would render our family restored. His reaction to this changed as I grew older. As a child, I'd often imagined him begging for forgiveness, to which she would eventually comply, a happy renewal of faith doled out to one and all. But during the years ending in teen or beginning with twenty, I was more likely to have this fictional father, this pretend me, bark at my mother for not trying to find him after they'd split, worse for choosing to raise me alone. But, much like the man himself, these visions never materialized. However, my presence as his son was enough to set the entire room of estrogen upon me, year after year. Mom, Aunt Tina, and the Lhasa Apso, the only one I could rightfully call a bitch. Before I could even think to say so, my grandmother would interfere, telling us that we could argue over the phone if we wanted, but when we were in the same room, it was a waste of a holiday. As it turned out, Mima was right. We could argue over the phone and argue we did on that first Christmas that I spent in Chicago. I had slept late and was frolicking through fields of sugar plums when the phone rang, permeating several layers of thick slumber. Mom made good time by cutting immediately to our traditional fight. I hope you know you've broken Mima's heart, she scolded me. Tell her I'm sorry. You tell her yourself. I envisioned the scene, Mom shaking the receiver toward her mother, Mima loosely holding her forearms against her chest and shaking her head as if to say, No, I will not participate in this shameful spectacle. Then Mom came back. She's so upset, she won't even come to the phone. Mom, I'm sorry. Liar. The very word was venom. Mom surprised me then by crying, not bitterly, but from genuine sorrow. Mom, I mean it. I did. Her pain was palpable. I really am sorry. No, she said. I'm sorry, Jason. She faltered. I wanted to tell you when you were here. She took in a sharp, staggered breath, but said nothing. I thought the phone might have gone dead. Mom? Hello? My voice was panicked. Her words sounded thin. I'm still here. Don't be sorry, I said. What's wrong? Honey, she paused. I'm sick. Two months later, she was gone. To make matters worse, diabetes took Aunt Tina later in the year. After her daughters had passed, Mima gathered her personal effects, threw them into storage, and moved to Helena. 
Billings had too many memories, she'd said. Between cancer and diabetes, her husband and all four children had abandoned her there. And though she never said so aloud, I could see it in her face that she thought I'd done the same. Most days, I couldn't rightfully argue with her because I wasn't thoroughly convinced that her accusation was false. I'd had the same problem with Mom. She died thinking I'd walked out on her. Though she'd always forgiven me for leaving Montana, she could never overlook that I'd left her. All I could do in my defense was attempt to justify my reasoning. I cut a solitary figure, rarely wanting for company. When I do want people around, I'm allowed the anonymity of a crowd. It's one of the many reasons I live in a city. But I could never explain that to Mom, nor to Meemaw. So I went home for both funerals, cried at neither, and watched Meemaw as she accepted condolences. Neighbors, former co-workers, and swaths of other people I'd never met crowded the caskets, heads shaking in a slow refrain of, that's too bad, before cramming into Meemaw's house to drink her coffee and pretend they were establishing emotional ties. She kept eyeing the door like a pent-up cat waiting for an opportunity to escape. This encouraged me to daydream about departure times and security gates. I took Meemaw by the elbow and excused her from the boors perching around cold cuts and coffee cake. We drifted slowly outside and I smiled at her. I figured you could use some fresh air, I said. I could use a cigarette, she sighed. Maybe I should take up smoking. That stuff will kill you, I told her. I've reached a point where I wouldn't mind. My smile evaporated then, but Mima grinned cordially, so I took her morbidity as a joke. Hoping for a healthy change of topic, I said, I'm going to be heading out soon. She nodded. It was good seeing you, though. I embraced her before leaving, and though she told me, I wish you could stay, her expression read something closer to, I wish I could leave. When she called to tell me she was moving to Helena, Mima seemed in brighter spirits. I offered to help her move, but she refused, saying she'd already hired one of the neighbors to help her box things and movers for everything else. I asked her to call when she'd made it safely to Helena. You'll still hear from me often, she promised. You're all I've got left. The conversation ended on that dissonant note, and I didn't give it much thought until she called again the following week. I wasn't home, but Bianca, the girl who wasn't my girlfriend, took the message. I saw the note stuck to the refrigerator, among takeout menus, and magnetic letters I'd arranged to spell out strings of an obscene fantasy. I removed the message and skimmed what little Bianca had written. Bianca! I shouted from the kitchen. She was watching some train wreck show in the adjoining room with her feet on a stack of books that had been abandoned on the coffee table. Yeah, her voice was delightfully dead inside. Did you talk to my grandmother? Me, Ma? she snickered. I ignored this. Did you? Yes, at length, I said. Um, I guess. Did the move go well? I don't know. Why don't you just call her back, she yelled absently obviously still looking at the television screen as she did so. I walked the length of the kitchen like an antagonized bull, stopping in the doorway to offer full view of my ire. I wouldn't have to if you had taken a real message, 
I wrote down her name, I wrote down her number, that's a message. Bianca and I shared a heated gaze that had once meant something else entirely. Would it kill you to call her back? I exhaled pointedly before retreating to the phone to dial Mima's new, unfamiliar number. We spoke for a brief interlude about the move and its relative success. Confirming that all had gone well, I invented an excuse to end the conversation, but promised we'd talk soon. Thanks for that, I said to Bianca, while taking great pleasure in having to walk in front of the television to reach the bedroom and lie down for the night. My mother no longer lived in Billings. The house she'd occupied my entire life was empty. It was possible that it had already been sold to other people. A new family arranging furniture, ripping up tile, laying down floorboards, installing new pipes, painting new memories on the walls of the living room and the den, hanging their lineage where once ours had been. I held that lineage. My responsibility to sire and heir surfaced as I drifted off to sleep, destined to dream of mom. In my dream, I spoke to her through glass. We couldn't touch, but our voices were clear. Are you still dating that girl? she asked. Bianca? Yes. In the logic of my dream, Bianca and I dated, and my mom had met her and shook her head disapprovingly. In my waking hours, I would remember that Mom and Bianca had never met, though I was sure they would still have disliked each other. She won't be good enough, Mom warned me, her face pinched in distress, leaving her looking severe. Her eyes were ringed in dark mascara, the sort of makeup she'd never owned in life. She squinted those straight black lines at me, symbols of her disdain, over the prospect of Bianca and I breeding. She'll misname your child. His name must be Henry. Mom, that's a terrible name. Upon waking, I would find that I didn't care one way or the other about the name Henry, but in the dream, I was adamant. Absolutely not, I said. It was your father's name, and you will pass it to your son. Mom's mouth opened to reveal a cavern, her voice shaking its insides. Promise! I refused to promise because I viewed her as harmless. She was dead and behind glass, a far weaker threat than the fictional Bianca who would surely also detest the name Henry. My alarm eventually sounded, causing a dream to ebb away, though the image of my anguished mother lingered in my mind for the duration of the morning. Mima took to calling me every week. It still wasn't long after the move, so I chopped it up to a need for familiar contact. A simple, how are things going, prompted her to list all the repairs she'd done on the house, which worried me because I had assumed the place was new. Must keep busy, she told me. When I asked if she had any time for recreation, Mima related all the books she had recently read, including many synopses and reviews. I'm also learning to crochet, she proudly announced. That's wonderful, Mima. I hope my tone didn't reveal my suspicion. Her activity seemed solitary in a way that raised red flags. Maybe I recognized myself in her. I suggested that she try introducing herself to her new neighbors. But Mima clucked at the idea and quickly shooed me off the phone. Despite my relief over having the conversation finished, 
I felt upended as a result. I foolishly attempted to lose myself in the diversion that was Bianca. Her affection often waned in accordance to any of a number of variables. Had she remembered to eat that day? Were her toenails in presentable condition, i.e. painted, filed, uniform? What did she love more, me or my willingness to disappear when her moodiness demanded it? Actually, I wasn't that foolish. I knew what we had wasn't love, but when love is scarce, convenience will do in a pinch. She was there, and I needed a distraction. Better than a book, better than a documentary, as fulfilling as a cheap takeout at a fraction of the cost, there was Bianca, the very definition of convenience. I propositioned her with a look. She pretended not to notice. I groped her inner thigh, deliberately, with no segue. She backhanded me with more force than necessary, then stalked into the bedroom. Magnetized, I pursued her. My relationship with Bianca is best described as ill-advised, but only to people who want something definite. And when things began, we didn't. We fell in at a party together, slumped into each other in a corner, doing whatever came to mind. Aren't you a thrill? she had asked me. That night, we exchanged phones instead of numbers. If we needed the other, we just call ourselves. It was backwardly liberating. I didn't worry that my phone would ring, didn't care when hers did, unless I saw my own information there. I'm going to a party, she or I would say. Meet me there. We took liberties in front of other people that we didn't behind closed doors. Not once had we spent an entire evening together. It was as if we required an audience to function. Or a game, like the phones. We likely would have continued that as long as our fear of commitment could last, but our batteries eventually expired, and at that point, we'd each hunted through the other's digital lists, calendars, and notes to find the revelatory numbers. But we were still emotionally remote. Afraid of asking too much, we often asked too little. It seemed safer, a more easily satisfied need. For that reason, even I was surprised when I asked her, What do you think of the name Henry? She had just rolled off of me and positioned herself to avoid the dark splotch in the middle of the fitted sheet. Thinking of getting a dog, she said. Maybe, I said then. No. Bianca knit her brows together, tenting them in the middle. Are you kidding? I shrugged, which got a rise out of her. You're such a woman, she said, shaking her head at me. What does that mean, I said, offended. Just say what you want to say. Her plaintive stare caused me to get stage fright. Come on, say it, she urged. You're pregnant, aren't you? Go fuck yourself. I could if you wanted, she teased and slipped most of her hand within herself. I was trying to talk to you, I said, and succeeding brilliantly. Her hand appeared again in a flippant gesture. Just say what you want to say but I couldn't. So I said only as much as I needed to stop her from asking anything else. The closer the holidays grew, the more I dreaded returning to Montana. But it was our first Thanksgiving without Mom, and Helena was leagues from Billings. 
There would be more to do, less to avoid. Still, I either brooded over it or felt nothing at all. During the more restless days, I even considered asking Bianca to come with me. Then I imagined introducing her to Mima. Let me tell you about your grandson's intimacy issues. My relationship with neither woman would have survived. I boarded a direct flight to Helena and slept most of the way there. Mom was waiting for me as soon as I shut my eyes. I know what you'd do with her, she hissed at me. Again, the pane of glass. Again, the odd makeup. Who? I knew who, even in the dream. Blanca. Bianca, Mom, with an eye. She's put out your eyes, blinded you with her tight... Mom, you think I don't know? I'm here with you during it. What? My face spoke disgust. She leaned forward to further insinuate her threat. I'm there in the room, she whispered. I'm there for Henry. I gasped awake, gulping recycled plain air. I took wide-eyed glances at my fellow passengers. Assessing my relative safety, I ordered a whiskey and counted the minutes for it to arrive. It was weak and watered, but it made all the necessary arrangements. I slept dreamlessly the rest of the way to Helena. Mima had Thanksgiving dinner ordered to the house. I could have helped with the cooking, I lied. I was useless in the kitchen. Nonsense, she insisted. All the more time we have together, hmm? I had feared this weekend would be spent playing cards and listening to AM radio, but those were memories of my youth. What transpired was almost worse. Mima, I said, I've been dreaming about Mom. Oh? She didn't sound surprised. She's been yelling and saying things that are upsetting, for lack of a better word. My grandmother looked at me expectantly. I withdrew under her scrutiny. I'm sorry. I didn't know who else to tell. Chasen, she put her hand on my arm as if to steady me or stop me from running. I also dream of your mom. I dream of your grandfather and your Aunt Tina, your uncles, and your mom. It helps me keep them nearby. But they're not dreams like that. It's more like my mind is making me deal with things I don't want to deal with. Mine is too, she said. Do you know I was sick before you were born? This sobered me. No, no, I'm sorry. Are you all right? She nodded, melancholic. It was cancer, just like everything seems to be. But I got treatment. They told me I was lucky. Lucky. It wasn't luck. It was sinful. She must have seen my confusion because she explained, I cheated death. I should have been more grateful for the time I had, but I used it to get more. With all that new time, I outlived my family. Mima's eyes grew larger as the rest of her seemed to shrink. It should have been me, she said. You don't mean that, I reached for her. Seeing my encroaching hand, Mima seemed to become acutely aware that she wasn't actually alone. She smiled nervously. You're so young. Mima and I sat, watching each other warily, until dinner arrived. The table already set, we busied ourselves arranging food on our plates. 
Before we ate, we felt it necessary to mention our gratefulness. I was thankful for safe travel and my health. Mima was thankful for her family. I wasn't honestly thankful for anything until I had left for the airport, then further still that I was able to stay awake during the flight. Two weeks before Christmas, I stood enraptured by Bianca, at the very least by her form. She had a way of closing her eyes without lowering her lids. It was practically clinical. Her clothes were shed without ceremony. The pin which tamed her hair hijacked in the same way she would remove a thermometer. I followed those movements, aroused despite Bianca's lack of emotion, enjoying the ambiguity that her detachment exacted. Through this, I always remained clad. Bianca only stalked toward me after her clothes lay at her feet. Within arm's reach, she would release my tie and loose my buttons from their holes. Under no circumstances was I to touch her while still clothed. During our first private encounter, I rose to stand against her, and she shrank away from me. I froze, unsure of how to proceed. Bianca then reached for my belt and I for her wrist. Again she stepped back, trembling. I held up my hands to show my harmlessness. Bianca took her cue to open my pants and finished undressing me. Once we were through, I asked her about it. I don't know what you mean, she said, and fell immediately asleep. Almost two years later, there we were, still at it. Bianca zeroed in, grasped me with authority, and pumped as if she were helping my heart circulate blood. I was watching the hum of her bare ribs falling ever closer toward my end when she tossed her hair back and asked me, Did I tell you that your grandmother called? There was no sense of urgency to her voice. It barely held tone. Flummoxed, I stared at her, but she continued grinding below my waist nearly working up lather. Yet only one image came to mind, Mima. I held Bianca still, forcing her to stop. In that moment, I wish we had the kind of relationship wherein two people share such a deep connection that they can read each other's expressions. I wanted her to know how inappropriate her behavior was. But I didn't want to have to actually say anything. That would mean talking about it. Getting up, I said, we can try later, I guess. I stepped into my jeans, then went to the kitchen, intent to call Mima, but the phone rang before I could dial. Hello, I said. Jason? Mima's voice sounded distant and thin. Hey, I was just going to call you. Jason, are you coming home for Christmas? She spoke over me, a slight I wasn't accustomed to receiving from her. Um, I wasn't going to... Oh, good. I'm looking forward to seeing you. But I wasn't... Goodbye. She was more manic than cheerful, but the abruptness of her send-off stopped me before I could gather enough wits to call her back. Again, my phone rang. I answered immediately. Hello? Jason Pembroke? A male voice said my name. Yes? I tried to sound adult enough to answer the phone by myself. Mr. Pembroke, I work at the Helena Department of Adult Community Corrections. I'm with your grandmother now. What? I temporarily could not say more. I'm with the Helena Department of Adult Com... The Department of Corrections? I cut him off. What happened? 
Mr. Pembroke, we have everything under control. Your grandmother terminated a phone call earlier before we could confirm that she had, in fact, contacted you. Will you be in Helena during the Christmas season this year? Yes, I answered instantly. Is it possible for you to visit earlier? We need to speak with you privately, and your grandmother may need assistance before then. I... My voice surfaced as a sputtering noise of exasperation. Can you tell me what this is about? It's a sensitive issue, Mr. Pembroke. We understand you're her only living family member. Bianca walked past the kitchen, her silence identical to what I heard on the phone. When do you need me to be there? As soon as possible. After squaring things with work, I told Bianca, Something's wrong with my grandmother, and the only way to find out what the hell happened is to go to Montana. Until when? Sometime after Christmas, I said. Okay, she said, her voice blank as paper. Call me if you need me to pick you up at the airport. I'll probably take the subway. We exchanged nods, and my train of thought sat stalled in the station from Chicago. Alan Harris from Helena's Adult Community Corrections Department greeted me at Mima's house. Mr. Pembroke, he asked as I approached the door. Yes. We shook hands tentatively. He explained in short order how, on the day previous, my grandmother had opened part of her right wrist and then walked around the neighborhood, anointing people's pets as if her veins contained canine holy water. Why isn't she in a hospital? I asked, trying to verbally contain the hostility surging through me. After they bandaged her wrist, she walked out of the emergency room and came back here, Alan said. That's when they called us. They called corrections? I was floored. Attempted suicide is a crime. She's nearly 85 years old. His face was impassive. Recognizing there was no use in attempting reason, I lowered my voice. So, what happens now? Alan Harris explained that I had two options. Either Mima would become my legal responsibility, or I would spend as much of the holiday as I could preparing her before they relocated her to an institution where she wouldn't pose a threat to anyone, including herself. A mental hospital, I said. He said nothing. Definitely not. Mr. Pembroke, I understand this is difficult for you, but you need to consider whether you're capable of taking care of your grandmother. What are you insinuating? She needs surveillance, he said. She's not a criminal. He handed me the card of a nearby facility and underlined his intent. We can help her. I told him I needed time to consider the situation then shook his hand to stop myself from leveling him. I entered Mima's house like a blind man, full of trepidation regarding what might be unseen. I'm in here, she called. I suppose she heard the door open. Jason, she said when I came into view, is it Christmas already? I'm visiting early, I explained. I hope that's all right. Brandishing her wrapped wrist, she said, is it because Mima? Her wrist stood between us, a symbol of everything in my life that escaped my comprehension. Why did you do that? Letting her hand fall, you wouldn't understand, 
She said this without bitterness or anger. She spoke filled with resignation. I do understand, I dishonestly insisted. Tell me about your loneliness, she said. I was unprepared for that sort of challenge. My response surfaced slowly. Knowing that the people who should love you don't. Feeling singularly mistaken about everything, even things you never share with other people. Feebly, I added, not being able to cry. I know a little about that, she said. I realize that crying is only good for congestion and sinus headaches. Mima related her solitude. I elaborated on mine. I watch the neighbors walk their dogs and I'm envious, she said. I don't even like dogs. My girlfriend sometimes hates me, I replied. I want to say I hate her, but I love hating her. I would love her without hate if she'd let me. Young people are so full of contradictions. I guess we are, I said. Sorry. It can't be helped. I blame it on your youth. But I'm 31. Shouldn't I be beyond this? Loving someone who doesn't love you, be glad you didn't marry her. I think about impregnating her. Mima shook her head. I know. She'd never have it. The situation or the baby? Neither. As I saw Mima to sleep that evening, I said, We have to talk about serious things in the morning. This hasn't been serious enough, she asked, and hastily fell asleep. We spent the next day walking around the neighborhood. Mima couldn't move quickly, but she wanted to get out. We spotted a young woman walking a King Charles Spaniel puppy. See, Mima said, take up with that woman. We could steal her dog. You don't even like dogs. I like that one. It's tiny. It wouldn't stay that way, I said. They never do. We arrived back at the house and she thrust a list at me. I need you to run errands for me. The items in black are from the grocery store. The ones in red from the plant store. The list was extensive and traditional. No ordering in for Christmas? We cheated for Thanksgiving. We should do right by Christmas. You're not trying to get rid of me so you can off yourself, are you? I asked. It was a leap, but I felt she could take the joke. I was hoping you'd do it for me during the night. As I carried the groceries in, I caught Mima crocheting. Did you get the plant, she asked. I did. It's still in the car. I walked back to the curb and returned with an egregiously large white poinsettia. Where would you like it, I asked. She pointed toward a corner. You can put it down over there. It's going to be our tree. Among varied dinner ingredients, popcorn kernels were on Mima's list. After dinner, she asked me to pop some and bring the bowl down to the tree. It's not strong enough to hold ornaments, she said, but it still needs to be decorated. Two hours later, our tree was decked out for Christmas. I had strung the kernels while Mima crocheted. What is that thing? I asked about the limp expanse she had stitched together. You'll see, she grinned mysteriously. I will? She nodded. I'm making something for you. I let her secret stand and focused on my task. Looping the thread loosely about the poinsettia, I adjusted and regrouped until each layer was properly placed. 
I looked at Mima, who smiled her approval. Both exhausted, we retired for the evening. I still hadn't gotten to talk to her about my options, but Christmas was still a week off. I had time. The following day, Mima sent me Christmas shopping. She had compiled a long list of gifts for friends back in Billings, then entrusted it to me, along with a sturdy envelope of cash. And keep some of that money for yourself, she said. But you're making me something already, I reminded her. Shush, you're my only grandchild. I'll spoil you as long as I'm able. Her list kept me out most of the day, but mainly because I allowed myself to be waylaid. The less time I spent in Mima's house, the easier it was to avoid the topic which would determine our respective futures. Though I couldn't shake feeling guilty, considering our newly found closeness, our increased emotional proximity had me again considering fatherhood. I took the opportunity to call Bianca. She answered the phone after two rings, a courtesy that I backwardly viewed as punctuality. Yeah, she answered. Bianca, hi, it's Jason. Oh, hey. Hey. I wished one of us had been smart or kind enough to hurry the conversation along, but it suffered several lags before I tried to explain the situation. My grandmother's in trouble. Oh, is she sick? Not physically, no, I said. It's more an emotional thing. Can senior citizens take Prozac, she said. I sighed tersely, a choice Bianca interpreted correctly as disapproval. What, I can't make a joke? It wasn't funny, I said. I thought it was. Besides, I don't even know what's wrong with her. Well, you didn't ask. She laughed humorlessly, as if you'd tell me. As if you'd care. I was surprised at the argument, surprised at our previously unvoiced opinions. These were topics undiscussed. We'd both agreed to that preference. There should have been no turning back. Why did you even bother answering the phone? Why did you bother calling? Is this the point we've reached, this insight and respond bit? I said. It's very trite. Maybe if you stopped to think about your own actions, my responses wouldn't be so surprising to you, she said. How am I supposed to know what's wrong unless you tell me? I can't believe you're acting like this is my fault. I'm tired of being the only one who cares here. I want to make this work. Yes, work is the perfect word for it. It's already so much fucking work. Her breathing coming in short spurts. I couldn't believe how worked up we'd both become. We were actually fighting when we barely ever spoke. Bianca must have come to the same realization as her next words were, Jason, I don't want to fight with you. Did you call for a reason or what? My temper spoke for me. I called to tell you I'm not coming back. Fine, she answered immediately. Email your forwarding address and I'll ship your shit to you. So that's it then? You're blaming me for not opening up to you when you're so ready to end things and ship my shit at a moment's notice? What the hell is your problem? Can't you even see when I'm trying to share something with you? My grandmother's fucking dying and I have to take care of her. All of this said while standing on the precipice of a Hallmark gold crown store. Mima had wanted ceramic figurines for someone. Haven't you been listening to a goddamn word I've said? For Bianca, it didn't matter what I'd just said. She'd hung up before I'd spoken a word. I redialed her number, but she'd already turned off her phone. 
You don't get to do that, her phone recorded my voice. I wasn't done talking, and you just... A sigh punctuated my anger. We can't keep going like this. You're wrong, and I'm right, and we're both a little of each. And I think it's messed up that you don't care, but I can't force you. I just... I think you're really wrong. I hung up then, and I didn't even go over what I'd said in my head. I didn't pretend to hash things out with her face to face. I didn't hypothetically tell her off, causing her to come to her senses or remain thankfully silent. I didn't consider a single thought until arriving back to Mima's house and asking her, What would you think if I came here to live with you? You like running errands that much? she asked. I stood, weighed down by packages and bags, needing an answer that very moment. My pride had rendered an immediate solution necessary. I mean it, I said. Silence and the aroma of rich food hung in the air. Let's talk about it after dinner, Mima said. Like a small child, I was pacified. I helped her set the table and serve the food, and we ate until satiated. Between dinner and bedtime, Mima kept me busy wrapping gifts, stuffing them into envelopes and scrawling addresses across so many manila faces. Toward the end, she slid an already sealed package toward me. Address this one to you, she said, in Chicago. I got as far as writing my own name in the space designated for addressee information, but stopped short of assigning its actual destination. What if I'm not there to receive it, I asked. Where else would you be? Here, maybe. She glanced sideways toward the clock and said, It's getting late. I know you're tired, Mima, but we have to talk. About the serious business, she said. Yes. The day I got here, I spoke to Alan Harris. They want me to agree to put you in a, in, in, in a home. I saw her tremble. If I didn't want to do that, if we decided that it would be okay, arrangements would be made so I could move in here and stay with you all the time. She immediately said, I couldn't do that to you. You're so young. Mima, that doesn't matter. You think that now. You're too young to harbor resentment. But you spend a week, a month, a year here. You'd regret it. That's why you left Montana in the first place. I wanted to lie, but I couldn't even shake my head. Go home to your girlfriend. Convince her to make little Henry. She, she's not the type, I laughed hollowly. She'd get sick of me, then leave. You'd still be as good a father as you could. Either way, don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. The escape she offered was a ready one, tailor-made for me. We'll talk about this in the morning, I said still afraid of the permanence of the situation. It'll be better once you've had some rest. I kissed the side of her head. Good night, Mima. Good night. She toddled off to bed, and I stayed up to continue elfing for her. All the envelopes needed postage, and mine still needed an address. I let it be for the evening. I could address it in the morning. My recollection of the following day traverses from grainy black-and-white stills to horrific technicolor reels. Five days shy of Christmas, I woke to find Mima dead. Sometime after midnight, she'd left her bed to go to the bathroom. Once there, she reopened her right wrist and slashed apart her left, 
A spotty trail marked her path leading back to bed where she passed in silence. Stumbling toward the bathroom, I saw the trail first. I was already on the phone when I found her. Surely I was incoherent to the operator, but someone was sent. An ambulance arrived to take her, and I watched their stoic parade with blind eyes. I got a call from Alan Harris, who accepted that I would return his call later. After they'd gone, I shut myself up in the house, cleaned what I could, then collapsed. The funeral arrangements were made for the following week. I contacted the people from Mima's Christmas list. They, in turn, contacted others. I shook their hands, thanked them for coming, watched them cry. I ate and drank and took breath on autopilot. I wished for familiarity, for Mima to still be, for Bianca to be there, and lastly, for a stronger self that wouldn't wish those sorts of things. I arrived back at Mima's and took in the spectacle of her now unfinished life. An automaton, I stuffed things haphazardly into boxes. Goodwill, I said to myself, or the Salvation Army. So went her books and clothes and cherished belongings. It didn't matter how many boxes there were, I'd filled them all. My eyes bypassed most of it, easier not to look or dwell, until they landed on a package that would have been flat if not for the subtle bulge at its midriff. Across it, my name written by my own hand. There was no address. I hesitated before opening it, feeling as if I were cheating by remaining in contact with her. But her words floated back to me then, like a half-remembered dream. I'm making something for you. There wasn't a card, only a small note, written in her familiar, sturdy scrawl, which had remained steady despite her shaky hand. Reaching in, I retrieved a downy, soft loop of fabric in shades of brown and beige. It's a tie? I asked aloud, holding it parallel to my face. Realization quickly winded me and I dropped it as if burned. The note read, I understand. Not a tie, but a noose. My breath came in labored spasms as I backed away from the package. She'd given me permission to leave, to abandon her with her decision. I stumbled to bed like a man walking through water, then fell against a pillow and cried. She'd forgiven me. I was forgiven. I wailed like a newborn for my grandmother, for my mother, for myself. I sobbed myself hoarse. We'll name our son Henry, I whispered, and then felt the hand of sleep close around me. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison. And executive producer, Charles McFall. <laughs>